invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're right about halfway through this fourth gospel of John. We've seen uh, many things take place as that led up to this chapter. We saw, for instance, how uh, Jesus has gone through, we've been through chapter 5 through chapter 10. He's dealing with his interaction with the Jewish religious leaders, which sets it apart somewhat. He has interaction like that in the synoptic gospels or the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But this is written so much later that he is deliberately trying to uh, attempt to do something different. And that is he is trying to uh, actually focus on the deity of Christ and giving us a lot more with regard to the discourses of Jesus as he is uh, setting to write, this is 90 AD, so this is some decades later after the synoptics first came out. So we're, we're grateful to find us here at this particular place, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This is his final public spectacular miracle that really makes it very clear, unequivocally, just undoubtedly, undeniably, this is the Son of God. There's no question about it. To heal the uh, lame and to make the blind able to see and the deaf able to hear is one thing, but raising someone from the dead is inexplicable in any other way than that this is the power of God unleashed. So what's wonderful is we're seeing sort of together, juxtaposed together in the God-man, we're seeing God at his, his most powerful in terms of bringing life to a dead corpse. But also there's something very personal here. Lazarus is a friend of his. We're seeing the humanity of Jesus. As much as we're seeing the deity of Jesus, we're seeing his humanity in this passage, this Actually, this chapter, it's a long chapter. There's a lot to break through. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. But Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary, are close friends of Jesus, personal friends. And so we see him in verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, two words. What is it? Jesus wept. His, he's dealing with something that is quite visceral here. And it's not just because it's a death. As a man, as the God-man, that would be enough to deal with. This is a close, personal friend. And so we'll be looking at verse 33 and 38 when we get there, where it says that Jesus is literally uh, twisted inside himself over the death of Lazarus. And seeing the grief that it brings to people, that sort of summons the, the deity part of Jesus, the, 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 the God part that has the mercy and the grace and the compassion, but also the power to literally call out Lazarus' name, and he stands up and walks out of the grave. That's pretty remarkable. So this is, J.C. Ryle said this. He said, for grandeur and simplicity, this section on the raising of Lazarus, for grandeur and simplicity, for pathos and solemnity, nothing ever was written like it. Nowhere shall we find such convincing proofs of our Lord's divine deity. As God, he makes the grave itself yield up its tenants. 
Nowhere shall we find such striking illustrations of our Lord's ability to sympathize with his people. As a man, he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, end quote. And so we read, of course, in Hebrews 4, where he's, he is a, we don't have a high priest that's removed from us, but one who can sympathize with the condition of our souls. He walked among us. He understands the the damage that's been done from the depravity of man, from the fallenness of man, even leading to death, the, f the final end game for Satan and everything opposed to him who is life. Christ himself is life. He grants whether something lives or dies. He brings life to everything from a leaf on a tree to a human being. So that's who we have standing here. But it's just amazing how we get to see this this hypostatic union, as it's referred to by theologians, the hypostatic union of both deity and humanity, humanity fully God and fully man. It's not 50-50, but there's no mixture. He's both fully God and fully man. And nowhere is that put on more glorious display than in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. We're seeing that now. I'm glad there's so much treatment given to that, so many verses, in other words. And it makes sense then when you get to the end, verse 49 to 53, where the, they're getting together, that is the Sanhedrin, the religious ones who are embittered. They, he has to die now, and we'll look at that as we get to it. So it's really an amazing, remarkable uh, display of the power of God and the compassion and humanity of Jesus Christ. Let's read through together and we'll get started. Verse 11, our chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the, in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken, Jesus had, had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest to sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Father, we thank you 
for disclosing this amazing event before us. Through your word and by the power of your spirit, we, you've taken our mind's eye to this place. We see Jesus standing there, seeking to console Martha and Mary, his sisters, them not understanding why it would take you so long to arrive, but it was so that without question you could put on full display who you are so that many would believe. And indeed, that's what happens, and we thank you for that. So help us now as we look carefully at this first 16 verses of the chapter, as we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate and commemorate Holy Communion here today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So it makes perfect sense that the outworking of God's plan of redemption, uh, that Jesus' victory over the death of Lazarus should precede his own death and resurrection. It's a perfect sort of prelude to it. it. It prepares them. I would say it's even an opportunity of an uh, example or, or an expression of his grace because he's already told them, of course, they didn't know what he was talking about. It only troubled them when he would say, I must go to Jerusalem, I will suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, and I will be put to death, and I will rise again. So now they're able to see that, that he's a, he has the power to raise the dead. So there's that aspect of it. But it is the perfect prelude or the per perfectly precedes his own death and resurrection. Kind of an irony there, if you will, that this is, this actually this event is what ratchets up the angst of the religious leader as they gather together and are fully determined now that he must die, as we'll see that as we, as we go along. Lazarus has been in the uh, tomb for four days. And by the way, I don't think I've mentioned yet, just by way of review, that Jesus is in the Transjordan area at the time. That's a full day's walk away. He had to leave because you remember how chapter 10 ended when he said, I and the Father are one. They picked up stones to kill him. So they had to leave. And that's what Thomas is referring to. You were going to be stoned to death. They had the stones in their hands. We talked about that last week. They were ready to kill him on Solomon's porch in the temple there. So he did his disappearing act as he's done before when they were ready to kill him, but it's not yet his time. He says that in a number of places that we've seen. It's not yet time. And the, the timing of things has been impressed upon me as we've gone through this gospel. There's a precise time in which God allows things to either happen or not happen according to his plan. And we've seen that, haven't we? Over and over again. They aren't able to arrest him. They aren't able to stone him because it's not his time yet. What we're seeing now is it's clearly getting closer to that time. It's pretty, pretty remarkable, this whole situation of timing. So the miracle put the magnificent power of God on display for one reason. Verse 15 says, For your sake, Jesus said, you'll remember, to the disciples, I am glad that I was not there. In other words, not there to heal Lazarus. Why would he say that? You know, both Martha and Mary said each in their own verse in this chapter, Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother would not have died. They both say exactly the same thing. That's what they're thinking too. Why would you wait two days when you've got a day's journey? 
The messenger to bring the message took a full day. Then you waited two days. Why? He was sick when, I sent the, when they sent the messenger. And now he's got a full day's walk back. He's been in the tomb four days. His corpse is rotting because the Jews don't embalm the body. So this is going to be quite a sight. He's clearly dead. Why would he do that? Well, hopefully we'll see why. And the title kind of gives it away, and the text will. It's, this is a God-glorifying death, isn't it? So, as I mentioned to you, it's significant also because of the plan that God has in making Jesus' deity is undeniably and irrefutably obvious before the people so that they believe, and many do believe. And so in verse, <coughs> when we get there in verse 45, I'm, I've alluded to this already, verse 45 to 48, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them w went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe. Well, how about that? So they go on and the Romans will come and see the the. the the naysayers always are looking into the future. They're pragmatic. Here's what's going to happen if we allow that to happen, right? They go, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. From that day on, they're, they've, they've strengthened their resolve. This man needs to die because we're seeing our whole livelihood threatened if he continues on. So he needs to die. So Satan's whole, this whole uh, issue we have today with, with these supposed miracles that are going on, you can turn on a television channel and see it, any, any channel you turn to, any religious channel, they're supposedly doing miracles. And, um, these things are, are fake. They're, they're fraudulent. And they're meant to accomplish something. They're meant to delude or or distract um, from things like this, from what God is actually doing in the Bible. So they're not that impressive anymore because we can turn on the TV after all and see supposed miracles taking place. They do a lot of damage in that way. It reminded me, I'm going through Exodus and it reminded me of when Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh. Remember that? And the Lord told him to you use your staff to turn it into a snake and so on. You remember what happened? Well, the magicians for, that worked for Pharaoh did the same thing. So Pharaoh's able to say, well, that's just a cheap magician's trick. You know, they can do the same thing. They also did some other things as well as those, as those uh, events go on in Exodus. So it's the, it's the same kind of thing. Satan's whole bailiwick is to employ falsehood and fakery. That's what he does. He's a liar. He's a liar. But he's very effective at perpetrating the lie, get, getting many people to believe. And when you see those things on television, you see that there's a whole lot of people that are believing what essentially is a lie. It's a very seductive lie. They like to see this, these kind of things take place, and sadly, they give their money to it, 
and all the rest of it as you've, as you've seen. Hollywood trades on this stuff. Hollywood trades on making uh, cinematic movies that are really not real, and yet they're, they have the ability to cause us to um, set aside our disbelief, willful disbelief, so that we can enjoy the movie. Um, we're, we're getting closer to that, too. We're getting closer to being able, having trouble to have the discernment level to see the difference, to have the discernment, to see the difference between a lie and the truth. It's getting tougher and tougher because of the technology that's increasing. Well, you know this. I mean, they even have holograms, right? They have holograms. They can create people that you can interact with, you can talk to, and they can be programmed to be your kind of person. So they'll always respond the way that makes you feel good. Uh, you know, as you watch some of these news clips on these things, you're just shaking your head. You're thinking, Satan, the liar, from the beginning is fully at work. So, so that people, instead of reading an account like this with Lazarus and being just overwhelmed, there's no way the record of this event would ever survive even a year, even a year if it didn't actually happen. So we need to, we need to get the importance of it here. This is a record that's been with us for some 2,000 years now and stood the test of time. So we have to be careful with those so-called miracles and the effect they might have on us. So verse 1 says, Now a certain man was ill. Let's take a look at this. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister, or her sister, Martha. So a certain man named Lazarus. That's, unfortunately, that's all the information we have on him. Um, he's not the Lazarus of Abraham's bosom. This is a different Lazarus, of which there isn't any more information other than he's sick, and he dies, and he's resurrected. He's mentioned again in chapter 12 when we get there, but only because the Jews want to kill him and Jesus. So, we don't, we don't know any more, but we know a little bit more, don't we, about Mary and Martha? In the synoptics, their story is told, an interesting story where Martha's complaining. She's fussing at Jesus because she has to do all the work in the kitchen, and Mary's lying at Jesus' feet, learning from him. And he says the famous, Martha, Martha, you, you, f you worry, you fuss, you fret over many things. And Mary's looking to the greater part. She's... She's listening, she's learning, she wants to be near me. She wants to hear from me. You know that whole story. So at least we're given a little bit more of a profile of the personalities of his two sisters, but we don't have anything more on Lazarus himself. This is Bethany, which is uh, from Jerusalem, the Temple Mount area. It's to the east, across the Kidron Valley, about two miles away. So it's very close. It's very close. That's probably why Jesus ended up befriending them. Jesus hung out at their house. This was a friends of his, very, very, maybe his closest friends outside of his disciples. So his disciples knew them too. When Jesus said, come on, let's go, our friend, our friend, Lazarus, is, is uh, asleep. We need to go see him. So he's their friend. And actually the place that they're at now where Jesus and the disciples are in this Transjordan area that's a day's walk away is also called Bethany. So it can get a little bit confusing. It's a different Bethany. 
It's a Bethany where it's an area where John the Baptist uh, did his baptizing. Jesus did some baptizing out there. And actually, a lot of people believed him because they had the forerunner, John the Baptist, who was telling all these truthful things about Messiah. And so when he showed up, they, it was undeniable who he was. And so that's a good place for him to retreat. So he essentially goes from one Bethany to the next. So now he's headed back to uh, the Bethany where Martha and Mary and Lazarus live. Uh, verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so you could say, well, if, you've, if you're familiar with John's gospel, you can see that that episode hasn't is written in chapter 12. Well, the reason is John's writing in 90 AD and the story about Mary doing that, um, putting the expensive ointment on Jesus' feet and wiping it with her hair, has been in the synoptics for some decades beforehand. So Don, John, in recording things, just doesn't have it in chronological order. So that's settled there. Um, so verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Uh, that struck me just for its tenderness and its simplicity. They don't even use his name. It's a very, very tender, beautiful request. He whom you love is ill. So Jesus was struck in the heart, obviously, about this. So it has to be, it has to be striking to the disciples that he would wait a couple days. I don't imagine they protested about that. They were probably hoping to stay there, like never come back because they want to kill you back in Judea. Let's stay here where we've got friends, where we've got people getting saved and getting baptized. This is, this is wonderful. Let's not go from here. But this is, this is what we're talking about with regard to the humanity of Christ. There isn't a more powerful, visceral moment in the scriptures, in the gospels, than this one where he's there deliberately by God's plan, deliberately waiting so that he's clearly, most assuredly, dead. And this is why, and we, we see why, and we'll get to that in a little bit here. But, so the story proves another thing. It proves that Christians can get sick, can't they? Christians can get sick, and Christians can end up dying from their illness, can't they? So what's important then? Well, we'll see what's important, isn't it? We'll see that it's important to God that in however we respond to the illness, however we respond to imminent death, whatever our situation is, that we're glorifying God in that experience. That's what this is all about. He let him die deliberately. Only God can do that. If a, if a human did that, if a doctor did that, they would throw him out of the medical field. So it's to glorify God. But in all sickness, we all have that opportunity. We all have that opportunity to glorify God regardless of the outcome, don't we? 
It always reminds me of the story of the Reformed preacher of uh, 10th Press, Philadelphia. Some of you know who James Montgomery Boyce is, friend of R.C. Sproul and that whole crowd. I got a chance to hear him preach before the Lord took him home uh, when we were members of Grace Community Church in California. Just a wonderful man. And uh, I know that he had a big impact on R.C. Sproul and all of that. Well, he ended up getting cancer. I think both he and R.C. Uh, smoked a good, a good bit uh, as smokers. And I, I think that's it. But I know this, that he did die from cancer. Because I remember this story, and it was real striking to me. His staff came to him when they first found out that um, he was stage four cancer. And he had told them that. And they said, they had gotten together and they came to him and they said, Dr. Boyce, we just want to let you know that we're going to be praying for your healing. We're committed to praying. We're going to pray fervently every day that God would heal you. And he said, that's good. That's good. Do that. But just remember, the God you're praying to is the God who allowed me to get cancer. Either that or you don't think he's powerful enough to have prevented that. Either that, or you think that he can't love us all the more through an affliction he gives us. That would be a misunderstanding, wouldn't it? He's saying, yep, pray for me. Absolutely, if God would heal, praise the Lord. And we've seen that happen too, but if not, remember, he's the one that gave me this. He's the one that allowed cancer cells to form in my heart, in my body. Otherwise, we don't have an all-powerful God you got to take a choice. We know he's all-powerful. We know he's wise in incomprehensible ways. My ways are not your ways, right? Isaiah 55. Nor my thoughts, even your thoughts, says the Lord. So he's doing things that confound us. But, well, at least for me, he confounds me regularly. <laughs> it's like, why this? Why that? Right? I just, I don't understand how this is in the good column. But I know that because you're all good, you define what's good. So everything does work for the purposes of good to them who love God and are called according uh, to his purpose. So he knows what's best to accomplish good purposes in our life. So Boyce knew that. He was confident in that. So we, we try to be. We try to be confident that actually God knows exactly what he's doing. People get sick. And God uses all of these things, orchestrating all of these things for our good and his glory. That's what this is all about. So the word love there, you'll find it's interesting at this point, at least in this verse, is not an agape root. It's not agape, it's phileo. It's a, a brotherly love, right? It's a friend. It's an affectionate friend. So when they say uh, that uh, him whom you love is, is ill, this is a very, very close friend of his. So it's the right term to use there in this case. They'll use a different one when we go further. You'll see that in a moment. So we're seeing the humanity of Jesus in close relationship, even in tears in verse 35, as I mentioned. Hebrews 4, 8, I alluded to this earlier. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands and he cares. He cares about all of this. He cares about Martha and Mary. 
it grieves him. It grieves him to his core. We'll see as we get into the 30s, the verses in the 30s, that this is really hard for the humanity of Jesus and the love that he has, this phileo love for that particular family. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's the main point of the entire chapter. This is a pivotal moment. This is a massive moment in terms of its theological and um, really uh, the revelation of who Jesus was as the God-man, as I mentioned. But this is why. This is what all of everything in our lives are to tend toward. Not only our good, God knows best what that is. Otherwise, if we could change that by what we perceive is better, we're in trouble, right? But we sometimes think we ought to have the prerogative to do that. So he says it does not lead to death. What he's referring to there is permanent death. Okay? He's asleep. He's using a euphemism so these guys won't, you know. It's, it's when a Christian dies, it's referred to in Scripture as they sleep. It's not soul sleep, that false doctrine. No, they're, they're asleep. It's just a euphemism. It's so they don't have to say he's di- dead because they're not actually dead because for the Christian, when their body dies, what happens to them? Their spirit is immediately with the Lord. Yeah. So he says it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So as I mentioned, there's irony here. There's the power of God and obedience to the Father Father that, as usual, all the way through this has been on full display. He came to do the works of the Father. His Father works and He works. I and the Father are one. We see all of that. We see that's an inextricable explanation, something that is, is, again, confounding to us to understand how he is fully God and yet able to be fully man. So yet, this act would actually, we're, we're seeing the demonstrations, you're seeing the demonstration of the power of deity and you're seeing the perfect obedience of the Son to the Father in what he's about to do here and yet this very act is what leads to his own death. As I mentioned, John eleven forty nine to 53, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, and there's some prophecy in here. You're familiar with this. <coughs> you know nothing at all, Caiaphas says in 49, verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So we know what has led to them wanting to actually put this plan into action. Whatever it takes, we're going to, we're going to, put him to death now. He's not going to escape us again. So John 17, 1, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus, when Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes. This is how that wonderful passage opens. Lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. So we know that even in his prayer, he's confirming that this whole issue of death and rising to life is onefold in terms of its primary purpose, and that is that God might be what? Glorified. That's right. He has glory in that because he himself is life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Remember? First, first chapter of John. So this glorifies God when life is formed ex nihilo or out of nothing, but it also brings greater glory to God when he can reach down, so to speak, and breathe life back into an absolutely life, lifeless, surely dead corpse. And it's glorifying God. So we see it confirmed here in his prayer a few chapters from now. After that, he's arrested. So verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So how did, how did the sisters describe the love that Jesus had with them? Phileo, a, a, a close, loving friendship that's affectionate, just like a close best friend kind of a thing, do anything for a friend, would lay down his life for his friend, that kind of thing. So it's powerful. But he uses, but, but the word used here, John uses agapao. So that's an agape love. That's to love and to cherish. It's, a, it's deeper love. It's the kind of love that God shows when he sent his son to die for us as those who belong to him. Jesus loved this family, willing to die for them, and he will not much longer after this, these, these ensuing chapters that follow from 11 on are really collapsed. They're really collapsed. Verse, you know, or chapter 13 when he's uh, in the Last Supper and then Judas goes out, right, and he turns him in and then he's, Jesus, things happen rapidly there. Well, that's what Jesus said to him, remember? What you're going to do, what? Do quickly. Do quickly. This is the kind of love that Jesus had expressed toward them, was agapao. He loved them. He loved them. He cherished them. He loves his greater family of all true believers in this way. It's a powerful love. Every believer is loved in this way, in the way that it would sacrifice everything, and in fact, that's what he did. He sacrificed everything for his love. So what kind of Christians are there <clears throat> that he would have that kind of love for? Well, just using Martha and Mary and Lazarus as examples of certain categories of Christians that he still loves with that full agapao love. Um, Martha, he loves the Christian that's kind of a busy body and fretting and fussing over this and that and kind of a complainer by nature and, and griping to this one about why things are this way. He loves, he loves Christians like that. And Mary, the ones who just take the time to lay before him and commune with him and learn from him and read his word. It's hard for them to get to the rest of their responsibilities. That was Martha's point, wasn't it? Why doesn't Mary come in here and help me? She's actually doing what's more important right here. 
So he loves the Marys, he loves the Marthas, and even the Lazaruses, the quiet, uns unassuming ones, the ones who um, aren't, aren't, of any, aren't very noteworthy at all. You don't hear about Lazarus after chapter 12. I mean, you don't hear any more about him. This is his claim to fame, dying, and Jesus and come and raising him. But just to point out that this kind of love is a love that this agapao love is Jesus has for all those who belong to his family. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So as I said, it took the messenger a day to get there. He receives the message that he's ill, and he waits two more days to make sure that he's dead. And then he says, let's go. Let's go. So this is, as I said, a remarkable yet another demonstration of God's sovereignty over timing. You know, God created time. He's not subject to it. He created it. He decided that was the context he wanted us to be set in. Why? So that we could exercise that as our many-fold stewardships that he's given to us. Time, energy, money, possessions, all those temporary resources that he gives us. And so this is time. What are you going to do with this time? What will you do with the next moment? What will you do with tomorrow? So his time is precise. This isn't just a random two days that he's saying, we're going to hang out here and wait. It's exactly what the Father's plan called for. He never did not fulfill the precise plan of God down to the minute down to the inch, everything with per perfection in terms of timing. We can tend to not give much of a platform to how important time is, and we kill a lot of time, as we say. We waste a lot of time, as we say. And it's all a stewardship. Every resource we have is a matter of stewardship. The Lord's looking at us. We say, we're ready to say, well, God gave us all these things. He gave me my time, energy, money, possessions. That's temp. That's the acronym for it. These are temporary resources he gave me, and yet we squander all of those things, don't we? I mean, we're, we're spoiled in that way. Jesus did, never did that, never wasted a single moment. He never wasted a single word. In fact, in Matthew 12, he says we're going to be held accountable for what? Every careless word. Read it. It's hard to read. Verse 34. So I'm struck by the stewardship that he's called us to in all areas of life. And it shows up in times just like this. It's like, okay, now it's time to go. Now you're a disciple, you're there with him. You're thinking, ah, good, he's not, he got the news that Lazarus is sick, he's, but he's hanging out, we're good. And all of a sudden, two days later, well, I'm going to Judea. Imagine what they thought. But the psalmist knew about this, about the times that were appointed for us are in God's hands when he wrote in Psalm 31, verse 15, my times are in your hand. He's acknowledging that, the psalmist, with God. John 12, 27, the chapter following the one we're in, the Lord says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour, this very hour. Now it's time. So the whole demonstration of the power to raise the dead 
He knows what that's bringing. He knows this is going to set things into motion very rapidly that lead to the cross. That's not lost on him. John 13, verse 1. This is the start of the Last Supper, as we call it. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. He knew it. It's here. One of you is going to betray me, right? Father, or is it, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? It's the one that's sharing, dunking the bread with me. And what you're going to do, do quickly. I mean, he's in perfect control of the timing all the way through. All the way through. Nothing random there. Verse 7. So after this, he said to the, dis to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? So this didn't make any sense to the disciples, as I said. Why would you go back there if they're trying to kill you? Do, do, do you see how they're thinking? They're thinking like humans, aren't they? Haven't you seen, Jesus could easily say here, haven't you seen how my life has been preserved so far? Haven't you seen that? That's all providential. That's all God's protections on this plan. There isn't a man who could thwart it because it's God who fulfills it. Why do we question that? You can't go back there because this is what's going to happen. We're pragmatists. We're often pragmatic like that. I'll tell you what this will do. I, or how about this one? I tried that. It doesn't work. That's us. That's them. If we go back, you'll be killed. Are you a prophet? He could say to the disciples. Am I supposed to shrink back from this hour? I just read from chapter 12. No, it's for this hour that I came. Will you understand that? He's told them by this time, he's told them several times, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be unjustly treated. I'm going to be, and I'm going to die and will rise again. It's amazing how long it takes for them to get that, isn't it? So it didn't make any sense to them. But it's God's perfect timing. J.C. Ryle said, I like this. The highest degree of faith is to be able to wait, sit still, <laughs> and not complain. And <laughs> quote. It's like, okay. Lost on all those. <laughs> yeah. That's the highest level of faith is to wait. But Lord, what if it's a long running, protracted issue. If your faith was as much as a mustard seed, you could be casting mountains into the sea. And whenever they would doubt him, the disciples, he would say, oh, you of little faith. If you could just trust and wait on God, be still, be still and know that I am God. He's not stopped being God and resists the temptation to complain. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? What? <laughs> well, what's that there for? This is an old, ancient proverb. 
Are there not 12 hours in the day? Is not the time fixed? There's nothing random with God. He's trying to get this through to them. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. So are there not 12 hours in the day? This is, time is fixed. It's immutable. You can't, you and I can't make the clock move forward one second or withhold it for one second. It keeps on ticking, doesn't it? It's made a lot of us late for things, hasn't it? And there's a reason for that, as I said. And actu actually, it's a critical, critically important reason. It's so that you can see that God fulfills his promises with precision in terms of its timing. So if you're still enduring, you're still suffering, so this is according to his timing. Either that or again, or he's a God... You have to choose, as, as uh, one, one rabbi wrote back in the 1970s in his, in his book, he said you have to either choose whether God isn't all good or whether he doesn't have all power. And he chose all good. Wrong answer. So he must not be all powerful. No, he's both. He's both. And these, this clock that he uses is instrumental in yours and my life. We should look at it that way every time we look at the clock. It's instrumental in terms of the stewardship of what? Of what God is doing. What? All things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to the purpose. We memorize Romans 8, 28, but we don't go on to verse 29 that gives us the purpose. That you become like Christ. So everything is accruing to that great th that great goal is to make you look more like Jesus. He doesn't waste a moment, not a single second. We look at it that way because from our perspective, we feel like we're wasting time all the time, don't we? Nothing is wasted by God. He's the quintessential, he's the epitome of stewardship, isn't he? He doesn't waste anything. Nothing. He demonstrates his divine power and incomprehensible wisdom, his absolute sovereignty over the precise timing and accomplishments. This, all of this glorifies him. This death, this, re this resuscitation, all of it. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Gave that a lot of thought and prayer. Turn to the scriptures. Try to do that whenever there's something to work out. What does that mean? Well, let's look at some scripture. John 1, verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So light has come because there's been a great darkness as Isaiah prophesied it. A, a light will come and shine in and break in on the darkness. And remember John 8, 12, I am, this is one of his I am statements, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there's this thing about our being physical beings that, that walk through life. It's compared to a journey. We, we have the Greek word peripateo, where we get pedestrian from it, because we're three-dimensional characters. We're walking through this life, and, and then there's this issue of time. You, are there not 12 hours in the day? 
You need, to, you need to respond to the fact that it's all part of God's sovereignty to begin with and what I should be doing during that time in my stewardship. The light has come. There's a time when there will be darkness. There was great darkness, and he brought the light. While Jesus is there, he is the light. So it all has to do with time. It all has to do with him bringing light, which brings hope, which brings life. Verse 5 of John 9. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as I am the world. What does that imply? You're going to see time in everything now. It's going to jump out now that I brought that to your attention. As long as you're in the, as long as he's in the world. That's a measurement of time. He's not subject to that other than it fulfills the plan of the Father. He's absolutely sovereign. And that isn't to make you mad. That's to make you comforted. He knows his love for you is agapao. You're his child. He would never let a single moment fail in its purpose. Will you write that down? Will I write that down? The fleshy tablets of my heart because it's so challenged at times. It's so challenged. You see it over and over again. John 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, listen to this. The light is among you for a little while longer. What does that expression imply? Time. But it's time that's getting what? That's right, exactly. It's getting shorter. A little while longer, and I'm going to be gone. Not going to leave you as orphans, he's going to say in subsequent chapters when he's dealing with them from chapter 14 to chapter 16. He's dealing exclusively. He's out of the public arena. He's dealing just with his disciples because those are the most important ones to him, and he's about to go to the cross. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but the Holy Spirit will come. So you'll always be taken care of, always, always. But wherever you are, there I will be also. Never a moment, but now for the purposes of the gospel and his mission on earth, that time is going to start collapsing pretty quickly now. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk. Here's one of those parapetal. This is your journey in life. Walk how? While you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. What's the darkness? The liars. The Pharisees that are trying to kill me, they're lying. They're lying to you, and it's costing you your souls. The darkness will come. He's there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Put all of these together. It's what the Reformers called the analogia scriptura, the analogy of Scripture. Scripture answers Scripture. If you find a tough spot, find other spots that speak to it in the Bible so that you can have a better understanding. Oh, this is what it means. That's what we do in exegetical work. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. You're going to stumble. He indicts the, the Jewish Leaders in, in Romans, right, in that wonderful theological treatment in chapter 2 and 3, chapter 1 through 3 is the universality of sin and condemnation, and he includes his own people, the Jews, right? He 
He, he condemns the Gentiles because of their fallenness in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's saying, look, um, you who, you are the blind leading the blind. And if, if the blind lead the blind, what? To fall into the ditch. That's right. That's what he's telling them here. If I go, you're only going to be exposed to them. And I don't want that to happen because I have agapao. I love you. More than that, with this term, you belong to me. You're a possession of mine in the best, best way, in the way that you are about to see because I'm going to die for you. But I'll be gone. But the Holy Spirit will come that you might have the life. Verse 10. But if anyone walks in the light or in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. John 1, 4 to, 4, 4 to 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. I mentioned that already. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You remember John 9 when we went through it not too long ago? There was a, an inquiry into the cause of the man's blindness. Remember the disciples asked him? When he, he was dodging, getting arrested in that moment too. And he sees a blind man, remember? And his disciples asked a great question. Was, his, what is, was it his sin or his parents? Well, neither one. It's so that God would be what? What? Right? Well, listen to this. So in verse 3 to 5 of John 9, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. That's what this is about. So it wasn't his. Some sin can bring on these kind of ramifications, right? I mean, you can commit some kind of sins that have a detrimental effect on your body, clearly. But that, not with this case. That's what he's saying. Sometimes it's just that God would be glorified. He's going to put something on display with something that you're saddled with that you can't change. He can't give himself sight. He can't change this. He's prayed maybe. Doesn't change. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. He's the saying the same enigmatic statement here. In chapter 9, if you remember, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's what he's saying to them here. So we could say this. I love this statement. that, And so I put it in the outline for you. Every man is immortal until God's work for him is on this earth is done. You're immortal. I think it was Martin Luther who said that. We're immortal until God says, your work's done. What's well, all this talk about work? Well, that reminded me of Ephesians 2.10, for we are his, what? Workmanship, what for? Created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. That's what Jesus is talking about. Fulfill what I've called you to fulfill. According to the gifts you've been given according to the providential circumstances in your life, bring glory to me. Do complete the works. Remember when he was leaving, he said, you're going to do greater works than me. He doesn't mean more powerful. He means more extensive. So for 2,000 years, he worked through his people to continue the works of Christ. Has nothing to do with salvation. Has everything to do 
with the risen Christ in us who's fulfilling. I, we're, his, we're called the body of Christ. We're his hands, his arms, his eyes, his mouth, his ears. Four works, but listen to what he says in the rest of this verse, Ephesians 2.10. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. God knew the plan that Jesus had to go through as well, didn't he? Yeah. He didn't have to, oh, no, look, they sinned. We better come up with something. That's human thinking. He's known all along that we were going to sin. And the son knows what he has to do. Which God prepared beforehand that we should, there it is again, walk in them. It's an issue of stewardship of time stewardship of the physical body, your ability to speak, your ability to listen, your heart, ability to care and have compassion, express love as you serve other people. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Notice he doesn't say, let's go. He's going to do it. He said, I will go. I will go. The disciples said, Lord, I love this. So many times the disciples remind me of myself. Lord, if he's sleeping, he's going to wake up. So what do we have to go for? They're going to kill you. And... They'll kill us, too, I'm sure. Our friend, he says, Lazarus. Guys, this is your friend, too. This is your dear friend. But I'll go to awaken him. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest in his sleep, taking a nap. no. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. That sounds cruel. Because had he been there, the assumption is he would heal him. And that's why Martha and Mary both say, if you, Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother, what? Would not have died. Yeah. I'm glad I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. But let us go to him. So that you may believe. Because by waiting here, instead of going and healing him while he was just sick but maybe still alive, I didn't run off and do that. We did this intentionally. Again, God's timing is essential. It's precise. It's deliberate. so that many would believe. And that's, that's what happens. Jesus is glad he's not there because the expectation would have been that they, he would heal him. And how would he explain it if he says, no, let's just wait till he dies so I can show you something really powerful. No, he's, he's hurting for Martha and Mary when he goes. He's, he's, like I said, this is visceral for him. This is emotional for him. We're seeing the God-man here 
So let us go to him. Verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, I know, I, I'm, I'm dubious about what, <laughs> what he meant by that, aren't you? Because we know Thomas. He's, what's his? Doubting. Doubting. So he's kind of the Eeyore of the disciples, isn't he? Yeah. He's kind of the Eeyore. So it's, well, let's, let's go and, and die. <laughs> right? <laughs> or, or is this him rising up and trying to muster up? You know, it's like virtue signaling. He's trying to show that he's super loyal. Well, let's go and die with him. Which do you think it is? The text doesn't say Eeyore. That's right. Let's go. Pack it in. This is it. Show's over. Let's go to Judea and die. That's Thomas. Defeatism. It wasn't a sense of duty. No. This is him. Do you find hope in that? I do. I find hope in Thomas. I find hope in these disciples. I find hope in all of these characters in the Bible that already have things figured out for God. You know? I can tell you that's not going to work, God. Let me tell you what the doctors said. You know, the doctors just, you know, they're throwing their hands up in the air. They don't know what to do. They don't know what's going on. Well, God does. He knows exactly what he's doing. So we need to rest in that. So whether in sickness or health, whether rich or poor, whether good times or bad, whether life or death, it's our choice to glorify God in our response. Let's do that. Let's pray and get ready for communion. Father, thank you so much for these brothers and sisters who give me the privilege of coming and sharing your word with them week after week. And Lord, you, you are faithful every week to show up and to speak to us through your word and by the power of your your spirit. So now, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us as we prepare our hearts to show our gratitude for all that you've done. Surely we're within days now of your sacrifice. Surely this is a, a wonderful moment of hope for us as you showed how you simply call a name out to a dead corpse and it rises in life. That's our hope, the resurrection. You led the way for us. You're alive. After that sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sins, you have now risen. You're at the right hand of the Father. And so, Lord, may we be filled with gratitude and may help us, Lord, to, to remember the importance of time and the things that we use this, our bodies for this walk we have, this journey that we have on this planet, whether it's days or whether it's many years out in front of us, may we use our time well in a way that brings you glory regardless of what we're confronted with. This we ask in your holy name. Amen.